Morning, church. Good morning, those of you joining us online. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians in chapter 2. And once again, this week, we get to dive into another facet of the mystery and the wonder of the incarnation. I want to suggest during the course of the weeks of December that you commit to memorizing this passage. This is a hymn, and and sometimes uh, our memory for lyrics feels stronger than our memory for words. So if you can imagine this as a hymn that was sung, uh, maybe that will help. But this is a This is perhaps one of the most important, if not the most important, Christmas texts that we have. It doesn't feel like a Christmas text because there's no shepherds, no wise men, no no star, Mary and Joseph, manger. But it really is. This is a text that deals entirely with the coming of Jesus, with what it means for God to be in flesh. That's what the word incarnate or incarnation means, God in flesh flesh. And last week we started by saying that uh, that one of the things, one of the dimensions of that is to recognize that Jesus was fully God. He is the hope of glory was the title last week, fully God. But I I want to talk this week about the other side of that. Not just fully God, but also fully human, a marvel of nature. So we're going to look again at Philippians chapter 2, and just to get kind of an overview, get it back in our heads, get a glimpse of the context, we're going to read it together, and then we will zero in on one verse. But first, let's read it together. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. The writer begins, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, Let's read this together. I hear you starting to already. How can you not? For this reason, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What a hymn. What a hymn. Someday we'll learn the melody and we'll get to sing it all together in glory. Last week, we unpacked verse 6. He was in very nature God, but didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be held on to and used for his own privilege. This week, we're going to look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, but he made himself nothing. And he took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Every single word of that verse, verse 7, is kind of important. And I want to see with you the different truths that unfold as we take some time to consider the dimensions of that verse. You remember last week we 
we talked about how Jesus was absolutely unique. Well, this week we get to look at another dimension of the uniqueness. We looked last week at John in chapter 1 and verse 14, that beautiful, beautiful text. We have seen his glory, the glory of Jesus, the glory of the one and only Son, literally the unique Son. The word is monogenes, the unique Son. There's a terminology that gets used there. It also gets used in probably the best-known verse that we have in all the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only begotten, his unique, his monogenes, the unique son. What is it that makes him so unique? We're going to look at a series of three truths that unfold. Three truths that I think if we have a way of getting them into our hearts and into our heads and into our lives, they will transform not just the way we see Jesus and celebrate Christmas, but the way that we walk with Jesus all the other days of the year. So three truths. Here's the first. That Jesus is the sovereign creator. That's what we mean when we say fully God. But at the same time, mysteriously, remarkably, he becomes the servant or the slave of his creation. So he is the sovereign creator. And yet what incarnation is giving us a picture of is that he becomes a servant of his creation. You see in verse 7, it says he made himself nothing. Some translations, if you have them open in front of you, may say he emptied himself, which is probably actually a better translation. He just emptied himself. And it's important to be careful here because some people, they read that or they're thinking about this and it's hard. I mean, this is headache stuff, but they're trying to get this into their minds. And what they picture is that, that Jesus emptied himself of all of the divinity of God. I mean, just everything that makes God, God goes out of him, empties himself of all of his divine qualities. But we, we know that's not true, don't we? We know that's not true. We know it because he said things and he did things and he lived in ways that no human being ever had before and none ever has since. As we looked at last week, he is still Fully God, in very nature God, is the language that the Bible uses. In very nature God. You can't just take off some of the things that you are without ceasing to be what you are. So it's not that he emptied himself of all of that divine life. It's that he emptied himself of all of the, if you'd like, the status, all of the privilege, all of the all of the worth that, that, that he might demand from other people and recognize him. He gets, he gets rid of all of that. He takes on the form of a servant. Now, the word that we've seen, we saw it last week, we've seen it already, but the word that, that you might want to circle in this verse, because it's mentioned twice, is a word that, that in, its, uh, in its, its original form is the word morphe. To morph. We actually use that word in English, don't we? To morph, to take on the form of something else. So when it says that he's in very nature God, the word is morphe. He's morphed into that. He's in very nature God. And he's in very nature, morph again, 
in the form of a servant. What's going on here? We're seeing that in Jesus, there are two natures woven together. There's a divine nature and there's a human nature. And they, they come to be co-joined fully. Here's the key. Uh, this really helped when, when somebody put it to me this way. When you think about Jesus as God coming to earth, being born as a human being, instead of picturing it as God minus something, that, that what made God God, somehow that was taken out of him, think of it as God plus something. Something new gets added in. The divine nature is still there, but now the human nature gets fused in. This is what makes him absolutely unique. Jesus is one person. I mean, the Bible's quite clear about that. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. One person, but a fusion of these two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And I know that's really heady stuff for a Sunday morning during the Christmas season. And it's it's easy to just think, well, it's not important uh, but I want to tell you that it's actually easy to get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, all kinds of things begin to happen. In fact, for the first four or five centuries, maybe longer in the life of the church, this was the key debate. They spent more time, ejected more energy, more of their great thinkers and prayers and discerners on this one question than anything else. Because they realize if they step off the curb to one side or the other, bad stuff begins to happen. And much of the history of the church in its earliest days was dealing with the bad stuff that happened when people stepped off the curb. On one side, and these were called the heresies, if you're familiar with that word, the heresies of the other church. In the one side, there was a heresy called Arianism that said, well, Jesus, he was a good guy, nice guy, but... Not God, not God. But then, but then what happens? Watch everything else unravel, if that's the case. On the other side, docetism. Yeah, not really human being. Sort of like, you've seen the movie Avatar? Sort of like God piloting just a human puppet, right? Not really human, but, uh, but God masquerading in the form of a human being. Arianism, docetism, there's lots of them. Nestorianism, that somehow he's both, like two distinct persons swapping in and out in different places at different times. But, I mean, let's be honest. It's a complicated question. It's baffling, and it's wondrous, and it's true. And that's the wonder of the incarnation. That's why we keep using that word, wonder. In our desire, our modern scientific desire to understand everything. I hope we haven't robbed ourselves of the ability to wonder, just to be wide-eyed and look at some of the mysteries of the world that are beyond our ability to boil down to equations or formulas. This is the wonder of the Incarnation. That being found in human form, Jesus was not any less God. But what he's doing is somehow fully revealing the character of God. And we know that that that, that never stopped. We know that it says when he emptied himself, when he took on the form of a servant, making himself nothing, 
that he's not actually becoming less God. He's saying something important about what love and compassion and mercy and grace look like. He's giving expression in his very person, two natures, to one of the things that Jesus taught repeatedly. Look out for one another. Place the needs of others ahead of the needs of yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we have this idea of the two natures. And both are full. Uh, fullness of humanity. That This isn't just a, a good man with a little bit of God sprinkled on top. Fullness of divinity. These th- these two things run in parallel. Uh, but what I'd like to do is spend a little bit of our time today looking at what it meant for Jesus to be fully human. Look at that side of the nature. Anyways, we're focusing on that. Um, don't think that we're setting aside the other thing like it's not important. But we spent all last week on it. If you didn't have a chance, go back, have a look at it. This week, we'll look at what it means for him to be fully human. Again, it's not just God wearing a mask. It's not just God parading around in an avatar. He is somehow, again, mysteriously, wondrously like us. Everything that makes us human beings, Jesus had. Physicality. He had a body, flesh, and bones, and blood, and the biblical writers are, are careful to describe that. You know, how his bones were not broken. How blood spilled forth from him when, when he was pierced with a soldier's spear. He was a physical human being born onto the earth. The same way we all get born onto the earth. Through a mother's womb. Not transported down here, Star Trek style. Not teleported onto the earth. He was a human being in all of our familiar physicality. He was, he was human in, in that he probably went through, and we know he went through, all the same things that we did growing up. You know, we have this idealized version of what Jesus was, and we sing about it, and we make jokes about what we sing about every year, but we sing the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. <laughs> what an idealized thing. Rubbish. Rubbish. <laughs> if any of you ever had a child or known a child that didn't cry at some point, Jesus cried as a man. For sure he cried as a child. Why? Because he was human. We know he was hungry. We know that he got tired. We know that he went through the emotions that we went through, frustration, anger, despair sometimes. Not just physically, but mentally, a human being. We know that he grew as we grow. Bible says, Luke 2.52, that Jesus grew, how? In wisdom, he got smarter. In stature, it means he grew in size. It goes on to say that he also grew in favor with God and man, which means he grew spiritually. So he grows like us. He is like us mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. This full picture of the humanity of Jesus. He's not just some pale, partial reflection of us. Part of the message of the Christmas story, and don't miss this, is that God says something beautiful 
about the creation that he made by taking on the nature of that creation. That says something about the dignity of what it means to be human because he was fully human. What we celebrate at Christmas is not just that God wandered around the earth for a little while as an avatar, but that he became fully human, taking on our nature. Think about it. Isn't this exactly what was prophesied centuries before about what would happen when the Messiah comes? You read one of those prophetic texts this morning in worship. What was the promise that was given? A virgin will conceive and give birth to what? A son. This will be a child in human likeness. There's his humanity. And you will call his name Emmanuel, which means, you remember, God with us. There's his deity, if you'd like, his divinity. Humanity and divinity fused together. And we see that dynamic, that interplay going on throughout the life of Jesus. At some time, uh, sometimes it looks like his humanity comes to the forefront. He's hungry. He's tired. At other times, it's his omnipotence. His divine power comes to the fore as he heals the sight of those born blind, as he, as he cures infirmities, even calls forth life from the grave. In our accounts of Jesus' life, we, we like to talk about how Jesus was, well, roughly 30 years old when he first appears on the scene to begin his public ministries. 30 years old, a grown adult, a man. That's what we say. But that's his humanity. As we also saw last week, he's a little bit more than 30 years old in his divinity, isn't he? He's been there from the very beginning. In the beginning was the word, John says, describing Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. So we're seeing them both together, humanity and deity co-mingling throughout the life of Jesus. And I guess, I guess one of the traps that it's easy to fall into is to spend so much of our time trying to explain how that could possibly be that we don't just submit to the mystery of the fact that it is. It's somehow the temporal and the eternal come together infinite and the finite joined together. And I guarantee you this, it just gets more wondrous, more complex the deeper you look into it, but it's a beautiful complexity. That's the thing with mystery. The deeper you dive into it, the more beautiful it is. And the hinge, if you like, the hinge on which everything turns is the incarnation. That's where everything swivels. It is just such a mammoth truth. In some ways, even beyond the resurrection, even beyond the creation of the world. Think of it this way. What is it that's more amazing? To imagine that that God created the world and and created human beings bearing just a, a little portion of his image. That's an incredible thing. What's more amazing, that or that God would reveal himself fully in the form of what he had made? That's head-stopping. That's heart-stopping stuff. What a huge truth that the sovereign of the world would make himself 
into the form of one of his own creation. So that's the first truth. I have two more, and these come much more quickly for you watch lookers. That's okay. I'm looking with you. Because we, we want to make sure we get to the table where all of this, all of this becomes real. But here's the second truth. We know this about Jesus, that, that he was unique and unlike us in his perfection. We don't see him slipping up, messing up, falling down, backsliding the way that we're all prone to do. He's perfect, and yet in his perfection, even still, he pays the price for, he bears the consequences of sin. And that makes him incredibly unique. And we're getting here in this question, not so much of who Jesus is, one person, two natures joined together, but we're beginning to ask the question of why Jesus is. Why did God do this? Why does he reveal himself in the form of Jesus? Why is it so important that he become human, fully God, fully human? And the answer, answer really gets to the very heart of the question of salvation. What does it mean to be saved in the mind of God? Let me, uh, let me take you to a, maybe a somewhat familiar word. It's, it's a word that was bandied around a lot in the ancient world, would have had common usage. In our world, it kind of feels like a religious word. And so if you hear it, if you use it, you're probably using it while you're singing something or while you're doing a Bible study or listening to a sermon. The word is Redeemer, right? We sing that together. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. But what does it mean? In the ancient world, a Redeemer is somebody who bore the price, went to the effort and incurred the cost to bring somebody back into the family who had been lost or to find a piece of property that used to be part of the family's blessing, their their physical property, and bring it back into the family. But the key idea is that you are redeeming what was yours and has been lost. And in order to be a redeemer, there were three three requirements. The first thing, you had to have the resolve to redeem. means you have to decide, I'm going to do it. Nobody else, this falls on me, this is my responsibility, I'm going to step up. You have to have the resolve to redeem. The second thing is you have to have the resources to redeem. Because this was often very costly to do. And the third thing, and this was really important, you had to have the right to redeem. What did that mean? In order to have the right to redeem, it means you had to be part of the kin, part of the tribe, part of the family of the person or of the land that was to be redeemed. You couldn't come in as an outsider and do this. You had to have the resolve, you had to have the resources, and you had to have the right. We see this going on throughout the Old Testament. The most beautiful example. The example that that we lift up often in wedding celebrations. Oz, I think about these words that we read at your own 10th anniversary celebration is the, is the example of Ruth, the tragic story of young Ruth and of her mother-in-law, Naomi. Go read it. It's such a beautiful story. It's in the book of Ruth. Yeah, easy to remember, right? Um, that whole story gets redeemed by a member of the family, 
a man, a generous, gracious man named Boaz. It's a story of suffering, but it's a story of redemption. And it's a story of family. We love stories like that, don't we? Family stories that end well. That's the story of redemption. Now, I want you to listen very closely to the language of, uh, of Scripture around Jesus. So have a look here in 1 Timothy in chapter 2. Let me give you a minute to find it. 1 Timothy in chapter 2. And we're going to look first at, at verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 2 verse 3 says, This is good. This pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, listen to verse 5. For there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind. Who is it? The man Christ Jesus, the human Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. You see how Paul's emphasizing here the humanity of Jesus, that part of his nature, the man Christ Jesus. And his function is as a mediator. Mediator is there to reconcile two parties. You know that word. We see it. We see it probably most often in labor disputes, don't we? Aren't we on the verge of another labor dispute in the hockey world? Right? Yeah, a lockout. And you bring in a mediator. And what you hope the mediator can do is have enough knowledge and familiarity with the players who they are, what their needs are, and with the management, who they are, what their needs are, can sit in both places and understand both worlds and then somehow bring them together. What if your job as a mediator was to stand here where human beings stand? Okay, well, maybe that's possible. But also to stand here where God stands. Who can do that and bring the two together? Could it not be someone who carries in their very person both natures, fully human, fully divine? You see how the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, really is the heart of the gospel? It is our salvation in its grandest form. Fully God, fully human standing at the crossroads in order to bring the two together. The unique Son of God, able to do what, what no one else could do. And here's the third truth. That, that Jesus is transcendent over his people. And yet he identifies so intimately with his people. Let me just say, for those of us who have grown up in the West and who've grown up in church and maybe haven't had as much interaction with other parts of the world, particularly other religions in the world, it's hard to grasp what an incredible truth this is. It is one of the truths that sets... Christianity apart from everything else. Because most of the major religions of the world, are they not grounded in the idea that ultimate reality is something completely other? 
It's just completely out there. So absolutely different from us, above us, over us. It's distant. It's unobtainable. The beauty of the incarnation is that while it recognizes the greatness, the transcendence of God, it says that God is revealed not just in his otherness, but is revealed in his imminence. He's here with us. He's radically involved with us. It's a part of our lives and part of our world. When it says in Philippians that he made himself nothing, takes on the form of a servant, it doesn't mean, again, that, that God sets aside everything that makes him God and then just takes up something that would make him human. No, it, it fuses them together, transcendence and intimacy together. So we get to say at one of the, one of the same time that God is wholly other, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipotent, And yet, at the same time, he is compassionately involved, intimately present in the lives of his people. That had never been said before in the history of the world. It was almost an inconceivable thought. And were it not so beautiful and so beautifully true, nobody would have believed it. And yet it came true. It came true in Jesus. Let me... Spend one more little discursion in Scripture, and then we'll wrap this up. I'm going to have you look with me at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. I want you to listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus, and have that in mind. Not just transcendent, but also intimate. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to this faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. So what's our response? Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. What does that all mean? In Jesus, you have somebody who is absolutely familiar with the struggles of what it means to be human, able to sympathize with those. Not only is he familiar with our struggles, he's familiar with our sorrows. Remember how how Isaiah describes Jesus? He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows this stuff, and he knows it firsthand. This isn't third-hand knowledge for God. He's familiar with our sorrows. He's familiar with our struggles. He's familiar with our suffering. Flip back in Hebrews with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Now in verse 10, it says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, remember he's transcendent, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what? Through what? His suffering. Both the one who makes people holy And those who are made holy are of the same family. We are in this thing together. He's not just transcendent. He is intimate. He's here with us. We're in this thing together. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the presence of the congregation. And I will sing your praises. He's so familiar with what it means to be one of us. He's not immune to the stuff that breaks our heart. 
We don't have a God who's just distant, way up there, far away, unrelatable, unknowable, inconceivable. We have one who's familiar. There's a, there's a word that's used to describe this. It's actually a word that comes from the realm of music. And Rochelle, I'm gonna, I'm gonna botch this, because this is your realm, but, <laughs> but, uh, in the world of music and, and in the world of acoustics, there is a term called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance. And here's what it means. I want you to imagine that there was not just a piano on this side of the stage, but there was another piano on this side of the stage. If I were to go over here and play the the middle C, middle C on the piano, you would hear that note sound loud and clear. What you would also hear, if you're listening very closely, is this piano, the strings of middle C, also vibrating. Those of you who have been here for a while, you know this used to happen all the time because if we forgot to take the switch off the snare drum while the bass guitar was playing, the snare drum went crazy, just buzzing and vibrating. What's going on there? It's sympathetic resonance. It's a great picture of what's going on with Jesus. Because Jesus possessed an instrument like us, fully human, When a note of suffering is struck in your life, there is a sympathetic resonance going on in heaven, in the heart of God. What an amazing God we worship. When you weep, there are tears that fall in heaven. When your heart breaks, there's a part of the heart of your Redeemer that breaks. And what is the response in heaven? This is, this is incredible. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. And uh, we're going to close on this note, I think. Hebrews seven twenty three. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who have come to God through him because he always lives to do what? To intercede for them. When we fall, when we fail, when we suffer, when we struggle, it strikes a note in heaven. And what does Jesus do? He intercedes. He leaps into action on your behalf. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, Jesus says. When the world feels like it's crashing down on you, Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Because it's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Why? Because Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is there at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? He's interceding for us, continually standing there in sympathetic resonance with you, interceding on behalf of his people. That's what it means when we say God incarnate. Sovereign over creation, now become a servant of creation. Perfect and yet involved in the redeeming of his people, paying the price. Transcendent and yet intimately connected with the details of our lives. How do you respond to something like that? How do you respond? Hallelujah. Wonder? Isn't that something we can cultivate? Just a sense of wonder before the mystery and majesty of God? Wonder and worship. 
I want to invite you to do that in the moments that fall. To come face to face with God in worship, to see his beauty, to see that grace, to to allow him to nurture your hearts and your spirits. And if you've come striking a note of sorrow or despair in your life, to hear the resonance that that strikes in heaven, I want to invite you to trust him, to trust what we've seen today, to believe that he stands ready to intercede for you. I invite you to trust him and to take all of that and to bring it into the place that God so desired to be with his people right here at the table that Jesus left saying, do this often. Do this as a way of remembering and connecting with me. Come to the table. Feast with your Redeemer. Enjoy the gift that I bring. Let me say a word of prayer with you and then we'll invite Pastor Sheldon to come lead us in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. God, we worship you majestic and enthroned in glory. We worship you transcendent over everything that you have made. We worship you beyond our ability to capture in words or in music. And yet, as pale reflections, we offer you those just the same. But we worship you also with wonder and with childlike trust because we've seen you. In seeing Jesus, we've seen you. What a remarkable thing to be able to come face to face with our Creator. What a gift. The revelation of God in the person of Jesus, and we worship you in the name and in the person of Jesus. Thank you that all of the glory and privilege of heaven was pleased to dwell in him, and that in him we can now gather together as your people, in your name, at your table, as a gift of grace from your hand. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.